Do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law. I am your host, Sora Murr. Hello and welcome to the very first Oz Radio, the official broadcast of Australian OTO Grand Lodge. In this episode, we speak to Brother Phil Pope about the new Grand Lodge initiative to help our returned veterans. We catch up with J. Daniel Gunther about the mutations of the Dow and his ongoing work with Liber Trigrammaton and share highlights from music and magic and events celebrating the work of Australian composer Larry Sitsky and musician, magician and muse Layla Waddell. But first to brother Phil Pope and his career in the Navy, the OTO, and the new initiative he's heading for the order to support veterans in this country. Well, yeah, I was uh, in the military. I joined the Navy, Royal Australian Navy, in 1978. Um, I served for nine years, um, which was the minimum time you could sign up for back then. You only had a choice of nine or twelve, so it was... Uh, it was a bit of a commitment. Um, and uh, yeah, I started out on, uh, you know, with recruit training down in Victoria, and then I moved up to Canberra to a transmitting station, naval transmitting station that looked after communications links to ships at sea, uh, low frequency stuff to travel underwater for a submarine broadcast. Um, I spent a bit of time there and then uh, got my first sea posting to HMAS Melbourne which was a uh, majestic class um, aircraft carrier. We had um, anti-submarine aircraft and helicopters, fixed wing and helos and we had A4 Skyhawk um, attack fighter jets on the ship. Um, you know, fair bit of sea time on the Melbourne, it was the flagship so we spent uh, quite a lot of time at sea and uh, what we called in the Navy up top, so you know anywhere above the equator, usually up around um, Southeast Asia, those areas. Um, 1979, the Shah of Iran got kicked out and we were sent up to the Arabian Sea in support of the US 7th Fleet. Uh, was not widely reported in the Australian press at the time, but we were up there uh, in an operational area briefly to support them with blockading Iran because America was worried about the uh, the Russians um, coming into Afghanistan and um, so America was pretty much involved at the time in helping the Mujahideen which uh, as most things American go went pear-shaped for them in later years. Um, Reason I mention that is because I was up there briefly at that time on the Melbourne, even though being an aircraft carrier, we spent most of our time just on the edge of the operational area and sent the aircraft in. But uh, it kind of comes back to something I know you're going to want to talk to me about a bit later on with the RSL and um, defence care and supporting veterans is because we were up there helping the Mujahideen that later became the Taliban. You kind of get that... Uh, a sense that um, you know what you were evolved in then had gone so pear-shaped in the, the current world that that's responsible for a lot of the vet problems that we've got with more recent wars. So yeah, a bit of a personal impact, um, you know, that sort of work. Uh, look, I've been out of the military for over 30 years now, so I don't 
think the Official Secrets Act holds any great terror for me. Um, we, um, yeah, it, it was interesting. When I served in the 70s and 80s, um, you know, the occult scene was was fairly young or reforming since the old Frank Bennett and other people, you know, uh, early Crawley days and stuff in, in this country. There were not that many occultists around. There was not that much in the way of published works. But oddly enough, um, I found a lot of, of people in the military in my travels that were interested in the occult, whether it was um, neo-paganism, whether it was more classical ceremonial magic, whether it was um, Thelemic stuff. Um, the only thing that I could really put it down to uh, is possibly the way a lot of uh, magical orders conduct themselves and expect their initiates to behave is very similar to the way the military does, but also in the Navy, because we travelled so extensively, we had access to um, books and materials that were just not available in Australia. You know, my first copy of the uh, the Falcon uh, Stella Machutina Golden Dawn um, was not in Australia when I bought my first one. I got it from a place called Larry's Occult Bookshop in uh, Hawaii off the Nepean Highway just outside of um, Honolulu. Um, you know, Crowley, Works by Crowley, Book 4, um, Liberell, things like that. You know, we used to buy them overseas. Uh, there was a lot of Adjar material and Theosophical material. There was an Adjar bookshop in Sydney, but they didn't stock... Um, a wide range of stuff outside of, of Blavatsky and a few others at the time. So whenever we went to India, there was a thriving trade in, in sort of badly bound um, you know, reprints of, of theosophical works and um, you know, or Steiner works, things like that. You could pick those up quite easily. So yeah, we... A lot of people in the Navy acquired quite good occult libraries and, and we used to um, get together because we'd spot people reading them. I remember I had a copy of, um, uh, your listeners will probably laugh at this, <laughs> um, uh, but LaVey's um, Satanic Bible that I was reading when I was on, uh, on HMAS Melbourne and I left it on my bunk one day and I came back to find it gone, thinking, oh, some bugger's bloody nicked it. And underneath my pillow was a hard copy cover, um, edition, the Castle Books edition of um, Book 4 by Crowley, Magic in Theory and Practice, with a little note saying, you know, come up and see us someday for a discussion. So I followed the chain up to the ground approach radar dome, which was this nine-foot fiberglass dome that housed the radar for aircraft coming into the ship. And the, uh, the maintainer of that radar system, plus another um, person on the ship who was in charge of UHF communications, were both quite into Crowley. And the, the, um, uh, Nick, the guy that left the book under me pillow, you know, he'd seen me reading LeVay, so he thought, oh, there's some potential. So, yeah, I went up, had a coffee and a chat, and we ended up forming uh, our own little... Uh, a cult group running it along uh, Golden Dawn lines. You know, once again, in the Navy, we had access to um, to be able to get really good ceremonial equipment, swords and stuff made. Um, 
having a ground approach radar system with a hollow radar mount in it, we had an ideal spot to hide this stuff from customs or the ship's officers. Our only problem was smuggling it up the gangway in various ports. But, you know, we'd be down at the Chippy's workshop getting lumps of wood and cans of paint, um, what paint they had on the ship, and then we got quite adept at um, colour mixing with paints to make different colours so we could make our own uh, lotus wands and things like that, or Anokian, uh, wooden Anokian tablets, and all this stuff we'd store in the mount in the, uh, in the radar dome. And whenever we knew customs were coming on the ship, when we were coming back into port, we'd just turn the radar on, but we wouldn't have it radiating. It'd be just the two radar dishes rotating. So the customs guys and the officers, who didn't know very much about radio, they left it to us techs, would poke their head past the little don't stay in this area for more than two minutes in every 20 radiation hazard signs and see the equipment working and just do a cursory look around the room and go, yep, that's all fine. That was the limit of their search. So, yeah, we were able to store quite a lot of, of material. We uh, used to go to the old church stores back when it was a little bit more rigorously run. In, uh, there was one in Sydney down near Central Station and uh, we, we used to go for fittings to get um, Catholic priests' cassocks. And, you know, we told them because they wanted to know why we were buying them and stuff. So we just let them, you know, told them we were at seminary and, we, you know, we were young, short hair, clean cut, you know, nice looking young lads. So, yeah, they'd go, we'd go back numerous times for fittings and we, we had a great range of tailor-made cassocks for robes and all sorts of stuff stashed in that uh, radar mount. Amazing. We, um, yeah, but we, we did, it, the HMS Melbourne had a reputation at one stage. I found out later from one of the, um, one of the air crew uh, people that uh, used to do flight deck sentry when we were at sea, if we had the carrier air group embarked, and they used to go on, oh, do you remember, you know, you do middle of the, oh, we'd be up in the Thunder Strait or somewhere. And, you know, used to be all these weird noises and you can never hear them. And we sort of were correlating the dates. Um, Dave and I was another guy in this group. And we realised a lot of the times when they were going on about hearing these weird noises they could never track down, it was us down in some of the, um, the catch nets that were all around the flight deck in case somebody went over the side. Um, We'd, we'd climb down into those and practice doing, um, you know, vibration and stuff in the middle of the night. And uh, unbeknownst to us, the flight deck sentries and that were going crazy trying to work out where all these odd Hebrew vibrations and stuff were coming from without really knowing what it was. So, uh, yeah, I think we inadvertently um, gave rise to some of the, uh, the aircraft carrier being haunted stories that went about the fleet over the years as well. It, being in a, uh, an operational area, even briefly, is pretty stressful, though, because yeah, there's a lot going on. And uh, we used to joke in the uh, in the navy, or run bets on if there was ever a major world conflict, our um, life expectancy rate. And at the time when I was in, we gave surface ships about three minutes of a lifetime before you were targeted and taken out. If you're could put up with the rigours of the submarine surface, you were really doing well, you had about eight minutes. <laughs> um, so, you know, just those sort of factors, again, can play a stress, but when you're, when you're 18, 19, 20 years old, you're 10 foot tall and bulletproof, so you don't think about that stuff. It's when you get older you start to uh, 
to think about it, but for the people in actual frontline combat or for people that go on what our uh, politicians euphemistically call policing actions or peacekeeping duties, you know, they see some uh, absolutely horrific things that they have to uh, carry with them for a long time. Um, there was a, uh, a Navy guy, David Finney, last year as uh, part of the commemorative address at Anzac Day, I read out um, a piece that uh, Dave Finney had written on the, uh, the problems transitioning from military life to civilian life. Um, and he was a uh, Bougainville and East, uh, uh, sorry, not East, Timor-Leste veteran. And he went in there about, you know, how hard it is to hang around the office cooler while people are discussing married at first sight or whatever trite trashes on TV at the moment, uh, while he's still remembering seeing uh, kids with gunshot wounds, things like that. Um, anyway, uh, Dave has, um, took his own life earlier this year. Yeah, Dave, um, Dave was 38. He, uh, he wrote some very evocative stuff about um, problems that young veterans face. But yeah, uh, lost his battle. He lost his battle with depression in Feb. you know, related to the things he'd seen. And um, it's really unfortunate because I think the younger veteran community has lost an incredibly articulate spokesman um, for their, you know, their problems and their struggles. But uh, yeah, when you're young, you're in the military, as I said before, you feel like you're 10 foot tall and bulletproof. Not much touches you, but uh, uh, the wounds, the scars, they stay. We have lost more people in um, to suicide and fighting their their demons back home and other health-related issues. But but just on suicide stats alone, there's a group in Australia of um, organised by veterans and comprised of veterans called the Overwatch Network, and it's tri-services people from every service in it. We have regional coordinators and we collect stats on um, suicides that uh, military people, the government never did this, they never kept the figures so they wouldn't have known that it had got to a crisis point, they just have generic stats for all of Australia and they never really bothered to look into how many of those people were ex-veterans or where they may have served. Um, so I think, now I'm not 100% sure on the figures, but I'm fairly certain that as of uh, last year, last year alone, we lost 38 veterans to suicide and in the, um, in the Afghanistan war, we only lost 40 veterans during the conflict. So, you know, in one year alone, we've already outstripped what we did in years of war in Afghanistan. I find a lot of alignment with how initiates are expected to behave in, in most traditions, really. Um, 
and and military life. You know, in the military, you um, you need to act um, as a team and a very close knit one. A uh, very close knit team. It can literally be life or death in some situations. But should you be cut off by your team, you're supposed to show intelligence, resolve, and initiative, and um, be able to go and and do whatever your mission is, or go and and um, you know act on your own without um, recourse to to any resources. I find that, especially within the OTO as well, as you progress through the grades. Um, you know, you're pretty much taught the value of discipline, but how that discipline has to be internalised and it can help you grow and, and succeed in in your OTO mission, which is pretty much promulgating Thelema and also improving yourself as a vehicle to do that and, and just progressing in your magical life. Um, and and you, you're shown by allegory in the... Uh, allegory in the initiation uh, rituals, uh, you know, how this is supposed to work and you're given this stuff to just percolate in the back of your mind, but you, but you find it in practice. If you stray from that discipline, then things can go pretty pear-shaped with your own, um, where you're, you're going personally in your life and with your own magical development. If you don't put time into helping your local body, your chapter, or whichever group you're in, it can also have the same effect. If you don't apply that, um, you know, that team spirit to be able to do stuff, it can start to lead you to having some strange ideas about where you're going, you know, with your own life. And I, I believe you you start to lose that ability to to find your true path or your will. Um, and your place in the universe. So it, it encourages people to have the discipline to go and study and to work on improving themselves on their own, but also through um, you know, various duties, renunciation, um, and also spending time just helping out your fellow members, uh, even taking part being an officer in a ritual or whatever. It's very team-based, things have to happen in a particular order. And if one person of that initiation team drops the ball and the whole initiation team falters, which is not a good thing for the candidate as well. Um, you know, these these have got very strong parallels to the way the military works. So um, I guess that's the affinity for me with the ATA, that and also the camaraderie within the, um, within the ATO as well. I've met some very good people in the OTA that I've, I've known for decades now and have become really firm and fast friends. And that's something you have in the military too. Um, so there's a correlation there. Uh, personally, how it's helped, I, th I think um, in a lot of, a lot of ways it, it's helped me um, to develop a strength of character and um, to develop a a more forthright approach to the world too. Um, yeah, it could be a function of getting older as well, but I think the OTO is so intrinsically tied up in my life journey. It's just a part of where I'm going as I get older. I can't really separate the two, so I have to give the OTO credit for the lessons it's given me that have taught me to be more self-resilient and more, um, yeah, more forthright and more able to stand up for what I need and want out of life as I go through that journey. Um, yeah, it's definitely having an impact changing the way I think and the way I behave and the way I 
I relate. I've had some discussions with um, with Shiva on this, and I know this is something that he feels very passionate about. He is very strongly minded in the belief that while the OTO is not a military organisation, it is run as much as possible along military lines. So he sees a great deal of parallel between military veterans and OTO initiates as soldiers of freedom. Obviously they're not facing the same sort of challenges, but there are mirrors and similarities in how um, how they're expected to deal with challenges when they when they come up so he's very passionate about you know our links um, I think uh, uh, not going to quote him because I can't remember exactly and we had had a few uh, beers when this conversation went down but he he did um, he did make a comment along the lines that um, you know we are supposed to be a military style order, so you know, damn it, we need to do something to help you know military veterans as well as our own people. Um, it also has a benefit in that there are quite a few military veterans in the ATO uh, worldwide, so having an initiative to assist them is a, a good way to go. Um, the um, there was a meeting recently um, by the executive uh, to discuss this in ways forward and they have approached me as I'm the president of one of the returned and services league um, sub-branches in Australia as to how best we could, we could do this or where we could direct, say, some financial aid in lines with, uh, you know, our non-profit and um, charitable status within the OTO. Um, so the uh, the plan at the moment, which is still being worked, is um, to have a uh, possibly a, a separate um, bank account for transparency, where it would um, then be able to channel donations from ATO members initially that want to go towards helping veterans' causes, and then um, that money being in a separate account would be totally transparent and um, could be accountable, which is a, a necessity for the Australian Charities Commission. And then um, I could use that with the contacts I have through the RSL to fund, um, send donations from that account to various ex-service organisations. And the one that we're um, talking about going through at the moment is uh, RSL Defence Care. Uh, Defence Care are an organisation headed by Robin Collins who have done a lot of good work Australia-wide with helping um, veterans and their families and current service uh, members' families that are doing it tough in Australia uh, because of the veteran having post-traumatic stress disorder or... Um, some of the body of work that, that's happening now that's finding some of the anti-malarial drugs that soldiers and um, sailors and Air Force people are being given, such as um, mefloquine and tofenoquine. Uh, it's starting to come out in overseas research that they are having uh, mental health impacts that look like post-traumatic stress disorder as well. So there's there's some issues around there from those uh, those drug trials and stuff that defence care is helping. You know, obviously when a vet ends up 
um, having a mental health breakdown, it, it can create all sorts of problems for the families as well. It can lead to family breakups. You can have vets ending up homeless. Um, vets are somewhat overrepresented in the prison system due to the issues that they go through as well. So uh, defence care do a lot of good work in that area and um, I, I've been um, yeah, I've let the uh, the executive know that out of all of the ESOs at the moment, I think that one is probably the most effective use of the money. So we still need to have more discussions on, on how much further this um, project's going to go, um, if we could move it to another level where we can accept donations from the public to then channel towards um, defence issues as well. Um, it's a work in progress, but I think at, at the very least we will get it up and running so that um, we can expend some of our monies in line with, you know, our pretty much our um, our mantra of being soldiers of freedom towards helping the people in this country that have actively fought for our freedom. That was Phil Pope, and for anyone interested in contributing to the fund, please write to soldiersoffreedom at otoaustralia.org.au. In November last year, Grand Lodge supported the groundbreaking Mutations of the Dow event. Attendees were treated to talks by Barry William Hale, Chris Wong, Tony Edwards, Grandmaster Shiva and J. Daniel Gunther. We recently caught up with Gunther to get his reflections on the event and to talk about his lifelong study into the mysteries of Liber Trigrammaton. It was our idea to, to, to have a real well-rounded, uh, you know, uh, not just an event, but, uh, you know, a place where we could go out, where everybody could, you know, isolate themselves from the from the Clefoth and, you know, just turn it into a, a real educational event, you know, in Tony's lectures and, and, and so on. And, uh, uh, to introduce this material because the trigrammaton material is incredibly complicated from the moment I laid eyes on it. Um, it just really spoke to me. And that was very early on. I was in my early twenties. Um, and, I also knew instinctively that that book was going to figure prominently in my own work somehow, that it was kind of bequeathed to me as I, I viewed it anyway, as a bequeathed to me as a task to figure out what this thing said, because everybody I ran into, I mean, everybody, you know, well, it's Greek to me. And I'm, you know, I make a joke about that in my lecture. I say, well, it's really Chinese, you know, <laughs> But nobody understood it, you know, I mean, they just were baffled by it. And uh, so as a result, most people ignored it. And uh, I couldn't ignore it. I was just driven. It just drove me crazy <laughs> to read it. I understood a lot of a lot more of it than most people did, I think, at the beginning, because I had studied uh, uh, the Tao Te Ching and the Yi Ching, and uh, it had already been a... a a companion of both of them had been a companions of mine for some time. So when I encountered it, it was like a link in the chain for me. And, uh, so I set myself the goal of figuring out what the 
trigrams meant, what the aphorisms meant. And then eventually when I got uh, the attribution of the English letters, I, I took that as uh, another another thing that I could work with. And, and then I realized that this was going to involve understanding that what I believe was that the tarot cards were attributed uh, to Trigrammaton as well. Um, and that that would open another door. And that was equally frustrating because some of them it seemed to me to be, you know, fairly obvious. When you just look at them, you go, oh, yeah, you know. But others, you look at them and you think, what in the bloody hell can that mean, you know? Could it be this? Could it be that? Well, I did the same thing. I just finally said, shut up. Meditate. Be quiet. You know, put yourself into it, you know. And that's, you know, when it happened, except for, I think in the lecture, I told the story about the last few trigrams. Uh, I got them all. I was sure I was right, except those. And I, I just couldn't get them. And finally, I was married to Gwen by that time. And she said, why don't you just ask the Holy Guardian Angel? I thought, well, the Holy Guardian Angel likes you to, you know, do what you can on your own, you know. You're not a, a prop, you know, and I don't want to, you know, offend the angel by, you know. She said, well, it's been, you know, 25 years. I think <laughs> it's okay to ask now, you know. I said, all right. So I did. I did ask, and the answer came immediately uh, in the form of a dream. Uh, it was just as plain as a pike staff in the dream. It was like a la John D. and Edward Kelly, you know, the angel with a pointer, and he's pointing to a couple of, of uh, easels that have diagrams uh, on one and the tarot cards on the other, and he points to that and he points to that. And I go, like, you know, man, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't see that. And uh, that's when I told the story about I called the cancellation of the order and said, I've got it. Let me send it to you so you can record it. And he said, not so fast. You know, who's to say that you've got it other than you? You know, you say you've got it. But, you know, he said, look, you know, we're not going to get total objective proof on this because it's a subjective phenomenon you're experiencing. But what we need to do is verify it if we can't. So he said, you got all of these things, and then you consulted the Holy Guardian Angel. I said, right. He said, okay, I will consult the Holy Guardian Angel independently of you, and I will ask for all of them, the tarot attributions to every single trigram. I said, all right, fair enough. And he said, when I get the answer, I'll call you, and we'll trade emails. Mind to you, you to me, then we'll see what we've got. I said, all right. So... I put my work away and he went to work and doing his thing. And then, uh, he called me and said, okay, I asked, I got my answer. I've wrote, I've written them all down. I'll send them to you in an email. You send me yours at the same instant. I said, fair enough. And that's what we did. And they matched 100%. Uh, as I said, uh, you know, the odds of that happening, it's got a lot of zeros after the one. <laughs> you know, I, I can't even remember how much it is, but it's like, you know, 10 trillion trillion or something. It's crazy that two people could just jerk it out their rear ends and get it exactly right. I mean, I don't know any other way to try to offer any kind of proof 
other than to say this was an experiment. We did the experiment. We did not share each other's knowledge of it, anything. It just, we just did it that way. And that's what happened, you know. We always assume when we go into these lectures or situations or events or, you know, seminars or whatever, that everybody in the room is like on the same page with us, you know. And they know what the holy books are. They know, you know, Crowley. They've read a lot of Crowley. And as I found out from my years of lecturing, uh, that is not necessarily so. Um, I can tell you that, you know, in a lot of OTO groups, the holy books are not widely read. Book of the Law, sure. Realizing that, too, that's always part of it. What, we want, what we're trying to do when we have these things is not just to have a, you know, sit by the fire and sing Kumbaya together, but, you know, to have... Uh, make it an educational experience for everyone to give somebody, everybody that comes can leave and said, I learned something. Now, we got a long way to go with the, with the Taoistic material because, you know, what we've discussed, the really important thing is that the Lama, uh, Steve really objects to this idea that the Lama is part of the Western esoteric tradition. He sees it as a, worldwide esoteric tradition. And I agree with it. Uh, we're not just limited to the West. I mean, Crowley crossed over to the East himself in his own lifetime, tramped across China. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, a lot of his work it includes this Oriental Taoistic element, you know, and I think that's really important for the viewing of Thalema as a worldwide phenomenon as opposed to Western esoteric phenomenon. That's very limited. J. Daniel Gunther's book on Labour Trigrammaton is currently in preparation. The recent music and magic event in Canberra shed light on the work of famed composer Larry Sitsky and the musical legacy of Layla Waddell. We caught up with presenter Cynthia Cross, FSR for New Zealand, who is currently preparing a biography of Layla Waddell and talk to Larry Sitsky and Master of Ceremonies, David Bottrell, about this incredible event. Okay, um, my, my name's David Bottrell, and um, I'm the, the rabbit in the spotlight at the moment. Yeah, so if, um, and um, thank you for coming to this, um, this event. Um, the, this event started when um, um, I was... My, my interest is, is in esotericism, and um, I discovered online that a certain gentleman residing in the ACT was actually producing compositions with esoteric themes and, and you know, uh, symbols in the, um, the actual titles of his compositions. And that's um, Emeritus Professor Larry Sitsky, who's um, at one stage, um, I think you were head of the School of Music here. You know, so, um, I contacted uh, Larry in, uh, in relation to um, one of his um, pieces called the Enochian um, Sonatas. And, and that was based uh, because of my interest in um, Dr. John Dee, who um, was court astrologer to Queen Elizabeth I. You know, so, um, and he had a, this invented language called Enochian that he used in his uh, magical operations. And so um, I just 
rang Larry and not expecting uh, any response at all and he said come in and let's have a talk you know, so, so I came in we, d we discussed uh, Enochian um, and the, some of the um, influences behind Larry's compositions and the way that he um, and the sources um, that he um, uses to inspire his work Larry's produced about 300 compositions and a, a good third of them are quite obviously influenced by esoteric themes um, or religious themes and you can see um, his interest in um, things such as um, Hinduism, um, Kabbalah, Jewish, other aspects of Jewish mysticism, um, and Enochian, which is you know, sort of a Western esoteric tradition. And talk, talking to Larry, I just realized that there's, here's a person who's you know, sort of been reading this material for years and years, and it's manifesting itself in his um, compositions. What happened was, with the Golden Dawn, um, I became interested in that because I love Yeats, mm -hmm. the poetry, and he was, of course, a member and wrote about the Golden Dawn, and so it was natural that I began reading the literature and finished up writing um, a work for piano called The Golden Dawn. Mm. And that was initially done as um, a ritual, which always appeals to me. There's a Russian teacher in Adelaide, and I was asked to write a piece, well, for her birthday or some such occasion. And so I discovered who her most important students were and each movement of this Golden Dawn Suite is dedicated to a different student. Anyway, when it was performed, what we did was we had a grand piano on stage. I had a strong spotlight into the innards of the piano, which is usually brass, you know, so it kind of glows a bit like a, a, a pot of some kind. and. All the students were on stage, sitting round it, all dressed in black, and one would turn pages for the other, and they just moved round in a circle as we went through all the movements. So it was theatrical and ritualistic, as well as musical. Uh, and that's the way it's always been done. But originally, that's how it was conceived. 
I guess, you know, it was a, I think we all felt it was a privilege to actually be there. Um, and the artists were just so generous with their time and, and talking us through how they found the pieces and, you know, particularly Tor with uh, Layla's piece, you know, uh, it was almost what he said before and after was just so impactful. And so it was really lovely to hear him say afterwards that she obviously had been, you know, she, he could tell um, by what she had written what kind of a, a musician she had been and obviously very talented. You know, I don't know that she's not rolling in her grave to think that that is a piece that represents her artistry, you know, perhaps there's just like a lot more that came after that. Um, but still, you know, it's something that we have to hold on to and, I, and it's just, it's, um, yeah, a piece of her that we can have going into the future. That's the show for now. We'll leave you with the recording of Thelema, a tone testament written by Leila Waddell and interpreted by Tor Fromer. Love is the law, love under will. Thank you.